ready to hear from Jesus? Yes. That's not mystical. He, he left us His words in writing. Historically verifiable, the best attested document in antiquity. There is far more doubt than Plato and Socrates existed than Jesus. This is undeniably what He said. Whether people will believe it and put it into practice, that's a whole other thing. That's what this morning is about because Jesus has been talking about greed and money. He's been unpacking what pastor and Bible teacher Randy Alcorn calls the treasure principle, which is simply this. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. God in His generosity has given things into your hands, some of us a great deal, others not so much, and made us this amazing promise that we can store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And then earthly money, which is so hard to come by and so quickly out of our hands, can be used for eternal purposes to seek God's kingdom, to have, according to the Gospel of Luke, we'll look at that another time, to have people welcome us when we arrive in heaven. This is big stuff. This is not the ploy of a guy who has hair like I do on TV telling you that if you give this much, God will give you that much in exchange, and maybe someday you'll have a Gulf Stream like he does. <laughs> if you'll notice, for the health and wealth crowd, the health and wealth is almost only working out for the guy teaching it, not for the people listening to it. If it doesn't work in Haiti, if it's not true in Haiti, if it's not true in Cambodia, if it's not true in the western Sierra Madre mountains of Mexico where people are subsistence farmers, then it's simply not true. But Jesus made a lavish promise followed, preceded rather, by a commandment that I find very hard to obey. By now, if you've been attending church here for as long as three weeks, you know I'm a bit of a mess as a Christian, okay? and often quickly lose sight of Jesus, forget His promises, forget the very things I've preached. Today's teaching is like that. I'd like you to look with me, please, to Luke chapter 12, where we're moving expositionally through three different talks that Jesus gave to disciples about their money. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13, this is where we were last week, He got interrupted in the middle of teaching. And someone in the crowd said, Lord, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Luke 12, verse 13. Jesus refused to get involved in that family fight. But he told a very pointed parable of a rich man who had all kinds of money on earth and said to himself, I'll get bigger, I'll tear down my holdings and make them bigger so that I can store more, and then I'm going to sit back and enjoy it. And in Jesus' parable, God interrupted that little soliloquy and called him a fool. And he said, the things that you've stored up for yourself, who are they going to belong to now? Because tonight your soul will be required of you. And then Jesus put the point on the parable for his disciples, including the guy in the crowd. He said that everyone who stored up treasure for himself and was not generous toward God was like that rich fool. In other words, if you're making as much as you can and keeping as much as you can here on earth, Jesus calls you foolish. 
because those things will quickly be taken from your grasp, you are going to leave every penny of it, perhaps for your heirs to fight over. The point is, they will no longer be yours and they will not be enjoyed. Everything that stays here will never again be of any use to you, will be a blessing to you. Jesus said, if you're generous toward God, those things will have an eternal impact. And what he was talking about in last week's passage was the perils of greed that make people forget that they only have money for a little while and make them forget that they won't enjoy it forever. Now he's going to move into an area that I find it much harder to obey him in, and he's going to talk to us about worry. Are any worriers here? Not warriors with an A. Some of you are cantankerous. I know who the warriors are. I'm, I'm asking about the warriors with an O, those characterized by fear and worry and preoccupation. Any of my fellow warriors here? I can look ahead and planning becomes scheming and pondering becomes fearing that fast. Jesus said that greed was a dead end. He's going to say that worry is equally pointless. Luke chapter 12, verse 22, listen. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, notice there's a therefore, Anytime you're reading the Bible, if you find a therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Okay? Try to remember that. It's a good Bible study tip, actually. In other words, what Jesus is saying now connects to the parable of the rich fool. The rich man was foolish because he thought he could hold it in his hands, and he thought the point of life and money and positions and possessions and success was to enjoy it here and now. And Jesus says that's a terrible, foolish idea. If all you settle for is enjoying it here and now, that's all you're ever going to have, and that can end at any moment. Therefore, he says, because greed is a dead end, because greed makes you lose sight of the need to be, as he said in verse 21, rich toward God instead, not rich toward yourself, but rich toward God, he continued to teach his disciples and said, therefore I tell you, Oh, boy, I'm already in trouble, as I told you. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Don't worry about your food and clothing. What's Jesus saying? Don't worry about the basic needs of life. Now, does anybody do that? Yes. Jesus says not to. Why? For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. The greedy man thought that his life would be measured by the abundance of his possessions. Jesus says worry has the same kind of blind, misguided thinking. Life is more important than food, and your body is more important than your clothing. Then he's going to teach the disciples by calling to mind things that they would have seen in their everyday lives. Now, if this passage is very familiar to you, don't do what I did for two or three days as I read it. Don't move too quickly past it. I've read this so often and for so long, I didn't know I was doing it, but I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, I got it, got it, familiar, familiar, familiar. Don't do that. This is big. This will liberate you and reorient you if you understand it and take Jesus seriously. Verse 24, consider the ravens. 
They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. What's the point, Jesus? Of how much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Anybody, can you worry yourself into one more hour of life? You think you could worry yourself into less? Perhaps, or at least the enjoyment of it, right? Look, if then you were not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of what? Ouch. Jesus says, on the front side, don't worry, and here's why. It's pointless. It does absolutely no good, and not only does it do no good, it's unnecessary. And that's where I want to stop for a minute and explain to you what Jesus was teaching. It should be obvious to everyone, as much as we do it, that worry is pointless. It does no good. You can't worry yourself into one more hour of life. You can't worry yourself into better success, into better outcomes. It does no good. On the contrary, somebody said that worry does nothing for tomorrow, and all it does is drain today of its enjoyment and its strength. That's it. You can worry yourself into such a state that you are unable to do the things that you should. Again, and I'm speaking from personal experience, I actually have postdoctoral work and worry. I can worry about all manner of things, and I come from a long line of worriers. And that's a little funny, but it's also a confession because my Savior told me not to. He said it doesn't do you any good. In fact, we kind of subtly have a word in the English language that tells you how pointless worry is. It's a synonym of worry, and that, that word is preoccupation. If you're preoccupied, think about how they put that word together. If you are preoccupied, you are pre, meaning before, occupied. Before you ever enter into the work, you're already busy in your mind, exhausting yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually. By the time it's time to actually do something, you find yourself exhausted. Jesus looks at His disciples who are first century working class people. The only social safety net they have is family itself. Nobody is sending checks every month to take care of them in their old age. They look at their parents and their children or their ailing parents and their missing children as a picture of the kind of suffering and need that is likely to come in the future. They are occupied by the Roman army in this time of their existence. They have been granted freedom and worship, but every day of their lives as Roman soldiers walk through their streets, they are reminded we are not our own. In fact, that Roman soldier can compel me to carry his backpack for a mile. That's how little my life means in this society that I have to live in. I don't even dispose of my own time. Many people in the ancient world were slaves. In other words, I'm telling you, people to Jesus told His first disciples in very difficult, adverse, restricted, 
conditions not to worry because it does no good, and much more importantly than that, their Father loves them. Look at these two word pictures that Jesus asked the disciples to consider. He said, first of all, consider the, what kind of birds? Ravens. Now, why would Jesus be that specific? Well, let's think about the ravens we know. Are you a big fan of, of ravens? Maybe the Baltimore variety, but uh, the, the, kind that, the kind that live on earth are pretty ugly, nasty little creatures. I don't know if it's true. I looked it up. I couldn't verify it. They have a reputation as being birds that don't care for their young particularly well. And if you've ever had a bird bath and had ravens in the neighborhood, you know what kind of mess they can make. And Jesus said, think of the ravens. The ravens were forbidden to the Jewish people. They were considered an unclean bird. In other words, Jesus chose a nasty bird that they were to have nothing to do with. And Jesus said, the bird flies around. They neither sow nor reap. They have nor storehouses nor barn. The rich fool had all of that. And that's where he put his confidence. The bird has none of that, but look at what God does. What does God do for the raven? God feeds them. God feeds them. Jesus says in another gospel that not a bird falls to the earth without the Father's knowledge. In other words, God has accounted for everyone in His creation. What's the point for us? End of verse 24. How much more value are you than the birds? If God is going to take care of an animal that He considers unclean for your dietary restrictions, that you would do well to move away from and shoo away from your home, if God cares about that kind of little creature, how much more is He going to take care of you? Then He asks them to invite, to, He invites them to consider a, a certain kind of plant. What is it? Lily. Ever been in a lily field? They're gorgeous. A field full of lilies will take your breath away the way the best-dressed king on earth never can. That's Jesus' point. The lilies of the field, he says, verse 27, they neither toil nor spin, yet even Solomon in all his glory was not dressed or arrayed like one of these. Here's the point for the disciples. If God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? In other words, lilies are fuel in the ancient world. They're a cheap way to help start a fire. They're literally worthless. And yet God, who cares for all of His creation, makes the lily beautiful. I mean, this, this has a great deal to teach me. And then He goes to the heart of the matter. If you notice there, if you notice what Jesus is saying about the lilies… In verse 28, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little, what? Faith. That's the heart of the issue. People are greedy because they lack trust in God. They think they have to get and work hard and hold on to as much as they possibly can or God will not provide for them. It will not work out in the end. Worry is a cousin of greed. It's not the same thing, and it's much more common in Christians, and frankly, we tend to sanctify it. I know a few Christians who wear their frown as kind of a badge of spiritual maturity. 
and they sigh heavily and talk about their needs and the world's woes and portray by their worry that they have great discernment and understanding about just how bad the world is and how dangerous and how careful they have to be to take care of everything. Jesus says, be done with all that. It's pointless. It doesn't work. It doesn't serve you in any way. And the heart of the matter is, your heavenly Father will provide for you. Just as He clothed the flowers and just as He feeds the ravens, He's going to take care of you. You see, worried people can't be generous. Jesus is building on the previous parable where He said that if you weren't generous toward God, in other words, if you tried to keep it all for yourself and enjoy your possessions and your earnings as much as you could for yourself, you would be foolish. Greedy people can't be generous, and worried people can't either. The single greatest reason that people who love Jesus but cannot trust Him enough to give is they worry. They make this mental calculation. I have this much. If I give God a generous portion of it, there will not be enough left for me. There it is. Now, what is Jesus telling His disciples? He is continually directing them back to who? Who is the source of provision? That was actual, that wasn't a rhetorical question. Those are, those are common in first-person addresses, but that one was actually meant to invite response. Who is Jesus saying will take care of these working-class, first-century, under-Roman occupation, most of them poor, perhaps some of them slaves, who does He say will take care of them? He never uses that specific word in this address, what does he call God? Their what? Father. I beg your pardon. He said God feeds them in verse 24, but when he speaks to the disciples, he said, what does he call God? Father. Look at verse 30. I'm sorry, look at verse 29. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Why? This he's building to his point. All the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father. I misspoke. God is God to the birds and God is God to the lilies. What I was meaning to say is this, He is much more to you than God if you trust Jesus. When you trust Jesus, God becomes your Father. That's why He cares about you more than He cares about birds and lilies. For birds and lilies, He is merely the Creator. For you, He is Father. That makes all the difference in the world. And let me hurry and in one minute, if I can, speak a little peace and comfort to those of you who didn't have dads or who had bad dads. I've known Christian men, particularly and some Christian women as well who have shared their stories with me, who have a clouded, distant relationship with God, love Jesus, but don't trust the Father because their earthly father was a hot mess, who was harsh and sometimes abusive and often abandoned them and failed to provide for them and was greedy and self-seeking. Your heavenly Father is nothing like that. Your heavenly Father is the dad you dreamed of. 
He does things for His glory, but always for your good. He always has you in mind when He acts and speaks. To the rest of the universe, He is God and King. To you, when you put your faith in Jesus, He becomes something much, much greater. Without ceasing to be God and without ceasing to be the King, He becomes your loving Father who is committed at his own expense, as every good father does, to provide for you. That's the contract. That's the covenant you accept when you're a dad, if you're a good dad. I'd do anything I could to provide for my two boys. When I can't provide as I would like, it pains me. It hurts me. My heavenly father is never in that bind. He never looks down on his children and says, I'd love to help you, but the budget's tight. I'd love to help you, but I don't love you quite enough, and I don't trust you with those kinds of things. Your heavenly Father is good. That's why Jesus changes language. And what we're talking about here, if you're going to learn to be generous toward God, in other words, to freely give from what God has given you for His kingdom, as Jesus is going to say next, and then we'll be done, Here's what it's going to come down to. Will you trust yourself and the way the world has taught you to budget and live and think and plan, or are you going to trust your heavenly Father? See, I shouldn't joke about my worry. I should actually be brokenhearted about it because Jesus says, when I worry, what I'm showing is a lack of trust in who? Not only in God, in my Father. I'm saying to God, Father, I don't trust you. What you said was really clear, but I don't believe it well enough to put it into practice. Ouch. Jesus is serious business. So, we're talking about growing into this, and as God's children, beginning as little spiritual babies and growing up into maturity, that can be difficult. Whoever said that being a child was a happy time doesn't remember large sections of childhood. What childhood actually is, is a complete lack of perspective. You ever see a kid, little kid, drop his ice cream cone? That first lick, the person doing the scooping didn't anchor the ice cream very well. I've had a lot of time to think about this stuff. They didn't anchor it very well, so the first eager lick actually tips the ice cream out of the cone, and bam, down it goes on the dirty sidewalk. What does that little child in that case generally do? Cry. There's no perspective. This is a Greek tragedy on the sidewalk, six steps from Baskin Robbins, and there is weeping and wailing and fat tears. And if there's older siblings who have more perspective, there is great laughter, right? (laughs) And then a steadfast refusal to share. And if you've ever been the parent in that situation, you can find it, as I did, a little bit humorous because the drama and the anguish is so overblown. It's just an ice cream cone. I'll buy you another. In fact, the grandma who scooped it felt bad because she knows she didn't attend the technique, and she's very sorry that you're very sad. She's already scooping you another, and she's going to give it to you to replace the loss. It's no big deal. I wonder how often as God's child who has this Father in heaven who makes birds and lilies and doesn't forget about them but continues to provide for them, decorates the lilies in breathtaking beauty, greater than Solomon could array for himself in his own robes. 
cares for birds that nobody likes hanging around the house. He feeds them. How much more will He feed me? How much more will He love me? How much more will He take care of me? That's the heart of the issue. So, what does Jesus say to do about all this? Verse 30, all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Notice the change in language. Godless people, the nations of the world, the Romans who live among you, the Greeks who gave them their culture and their language we all speak, all the centers of power, the people who have oppressed us for generations, they seek after these things. People who don't know God busy themselves seeking food and clothing and enjoyment. You don't do that. Don't seek what you are to eat. Don't seek what you are to drink. Don't worry about it because the nations of the world seek after those things, and here's why none of that is necessary on your part. Your Father knows that you need them. What are you to do instead? Instead, seek His kingdom. Now, what does that mean? That means to give the same kind of attention and energy and thought and work into putting God first that I used to put into providing for myself. Believe me, in none of this is Jesus telling His disciples, go home and sit on the couch and God will take care of the rest. All of these men were workers. Jesus Himself was a worker. The Bible says that we should do wise things to glorify God like work and take rest and save and plan ahead. In fact, Paul wrote to an early church, a man who refuses to work should not eat. My mother's favorite verse for me growing up as a teenager. <laughs> yes, there is a place for work. God worked in six days. He took rest on the seventh day, not because He needed rest, but because He wanted to give us an example of rest, of what the end of the week looked like so that we could enjoy it and begin, actually, the week focused on Him. In all of these things, what Jesus is saying is, don't stop living the life has, that God has given you. Stop making possession and accumulation the center and the focus so that it blinds you with greed and kills you with worry, because your Father already knows that you need all these things, and what you are to do is seek His kingdom. Let me be very practical. Since Jesus is speaking about earning and acquiring and giving, seeking His kingdom financially would be that when I am provided a job and I earn money, I take that little bit of money, whether it's a lot or a little, and I put God first by being generous toward Him first. I don't wait and see what I can afford. I take a step to the measure of my trust in God at that moment, and I say, God, this belongs to you. This is an expression of my love for you. This is for your kingdom. This is for the preaching of the gospel. This is for the building up of your church. This is to extend your compassion and your mercy in my neighborhood and around the world. And having done that, having put him first as the early Christian churches did, where they set aside offerings according to what they had earned during the week and brought it in and pulled it together to spread it out in good works and the preaching of the gospel, having done that on Sunday, I trust him. And I put him first 
and I wait to see how my Father will provide. Now, before I close, let me raise an objection. Does this apply, and should this work for the poor? Does God expect this from all of His disciples? There's no qualifiers here. See, I grew up middle class in Mexico and went to private schools, which was very nice. I wasn't allowed in the public schools, so I went to private schools and rubbed shoulders sometimes with very, very wealthy kids, some who needed bodyguards. They were so rich. That's a burden if you're 17 and you need a bodyguard because your family has so much money. I also, because of my father's work, often spent times with people who were desperately poor, people so poor that they made me feel bad for having Levi's. Because I'm looking at my $35 pair of jeans thinking this is more money than they see in a week. And I watch my dad with incredible confidence teach poor people to give. And later did it myself. And I once asked him, Dad, aren't these people too poor to give? And he said, son, if God's Word applies to all Christians, they're too poor not to give. Understand what Jesus is saying and the power of it in this last verse. Seek His kingdom and what's going to happen? Seek His kingdom, meaning put His kingdom first, make Him first priority. Don't worry about feathering your own nest any further. Seek His kingdom as a priority, and then something's going to happen. What's going to happen? These things will be added to you. What are these things? Food and clothing, the basics of life. And folks, I can tell you from personal experience, I could tell you all afternoon about watching subsistence farmers at the very edge of barely making it take Jesus seriously and become very generous givers. And year after year of visiting with them and seeing what God did in their lives, they didn't become wealthy. They were poor and they died poor because their culture and their lifestyle allowed for nothing else. But at no point did their heavenly Father fail to provide for them. And what could have been grinding poverty was transformed for them and for me as I discovered it and applied it in my own very middle-class little context became this amazing adventure of faith where I said with my first paycheck, God, you first. And I had such a bad job, I really, I had an old 74 Chevy pickup that used so much gas, my joke was I need one tank to get to work and another tank to get back. Had two fuel tanks on that old truck. And it worked out. At the risk of being too personal, I can tell you, I went to four years of college and four years of grad school. By God's amazing provision with very ordinary jobs, I graduated with no debt. You know how extraordinary that is? It's a miracle. And it never was provided more than a semester at a time. Got this semester covered, and then this semester covered, and this semester covered. I'm telling you, and you'll hear at least, I hope, two testimonies from people who spontaneously came to me last Sunday and excitedly, right over there, right in front of the sound booth, told me how they had learned to trust God and seek His kingdom first. Neither of them rich. Very ordinary people, but people experiencing the truth of what Jesus said. If you will seek God's kingdom, 
all the rest will be added to you. So if you're a young worker, you need to get in in that kind of understanding. You can't afford to wait. Many people, through worry, delay giving and delay seeking God's kingdom first. They put it off because they say, when my ship comes in, when I get a promotion, when I get the kind of work I deserve, when they recognize my genius and start paying me accordingly, then I will do all these things. Don't wait. Believe me, it's much easier to trust God with a small percentage of the $100 you make than when you have $10 million. Greed has a way of wrapping itself around you and making you love the blessings that God has given you and forget the giver. What am I trying to tell you? I think what Jesus meant is this, worry doesn't work, but putting God first does. If you will put Him first, if you will start wherever you are, if like the single mom who spoke to me last week about her experience years ago, if you can put an offering in with your hands shaking, because you just know turning loose of that little bit of money is going to keep your kids hungry toward the end of the week. If you can get started, you'll see this come off the page and stop being an abstract teaching to disciples from long ago, and you'll begin to experience your Father's love. That's why giving is a discipline. It teaches you to trust Him. It teaches you to put Him first and turn to your Father and say, what now? I did what you asked. I, I obeyed as best I could to the limit of my faith and my understanding. I've done all I can. What are you going to do now, Father? Let me assure you from Scripture and personal experience and dozens, literally, perhaps hundreds of people in two different languages who have told me their stories, some very wealthy, some very poor, your heavenly Father will not disappoint you. Jesus will make good on this promise that if you will seek God's kingdom, all these things will be added to you. Young workers, you literally can't afford to wait. If I could, since there's so many of you in this service, the millennial generation is crushed with debt and poor job prospects and all kinds of negative statistics that make you feel like you'll never get married and never escape your parents' home. That's the buzz. I got a couple in that generation and edging into an even younger generation. If Jesus could speak to poor people at the very edge of subsistence and love them and provide for them in such a way that they became the greatest Christian generation that we've ever seen, He can handle this economy. He can handle your future spouse. He can get you internships, jobs, careers, opportunities, blessings that you cannot even begin to imagine, and I could not describe to you because I had no idea how my father would take care of me when I was exactly in your situation. I'm telling you this specifically and personally not to call you out, but to tell you as the father of 18 and a, an 18 and a 15-year-old boy, I so desperately want my own children to know this and live this so that they can escape worry for the rest of their lives. Not hard work, but worry. That they will work hard and do their very best, do what God said, and then sit back in peace saying, Father, I've done what you asked, now provide all the rest. And my point is, He will. Because worry doesn't work, but putting God first does. Will you pray with me, please?
Father, there's people here who have given multiplied thousands of dollars as one way of seeking your kingdom. They've helped preach the gospel around the world. They've adopted and fed and clothed orphans. They've made mercy extended to some of the darkest corners of our town and our world. They've got this wired. They get it, and they look forward to it, and they can't wait to give and give again because they know they cannot outgive you. And they're excited at this point to see how you're going to provide next. But probably for the great majority of us, this is still a struggle. Would you speak to every disciple here and get them started trusting you, to be generous towards you, to put you first, to give as soon as they get it, and then watch what you do next. And God, there's several families here who are right on the edge of not having their basics provided because they lack employment. Would you speak peace and comfort and provision to them in that difficult season? And as you have for others in this church family and many others, would you provide for them in that very difficult time so that they will be able to look back someday and tell their kids that when mom or dad or both didn't have jobs, you did amazing things to provide for them. And that's how they learned to trust you when it was hardest to do so. God, move us forward in generosity towards you. Let us not be satisfied with what we're accustomed to. Help us to be generous, wholehearted, sacrificial givers who will give as a matter of purpose and with consistency, not when we think we can afford it because we've already taken care of everything else. Father, you are good and loving and better than I've been able to describe. I've made a mess out of things a little bit this morning, but your love and your truth is real and good so reassure every fearful, worried heart and teach us not to worry, but to seek you instead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Cross Point, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Hinton Beach community.